Well, thank you for joining us here on Covenant Key for another look at first century history. In this session, we will be looking at some of the other events that were happening while our first century brothers and sisters were being hunted down and killed in the Neuronic Persecution. Before we begin, however, I want to let our new listeners know that there's a lesson outline available for each of these podcasts. Each of them are in PDF format. Most listeners like to have it open in front of them as they listen. And if you don't have that PDF, simply email me and request it. If you're planning to be a regular listener here and would like to receive that lesson outline as soon as it's ready, without having to request it each time, simply email me and ask to be put on the PDF list. The PDF contains all my lesson notes and resource references so that you don't have to write them down while you're listening. It's free for the asking, so email me. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org, and that preterist1 is just the number. It's not spelled out. Preterist1 at preterist.org. Let's pray before we begin. Our Lord, the Most High God, who is lifted up above all who are in the heavens and the earth, the Holy One who is enthroned between the cherubim. We acknowledge your supreme holiness and righteousness and our utter unworthiness. We praise you for sending your Son to redeem us from our sins. Be with us here in these studies as we look at the way you sovereignly acted within history to build your kingdom in the hearts of your people. Help us as we seek your kingdom first in our lives so that we can live in such a way that we bring much glory to your holy name. It is in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. If you have uh, benefited from these podcasts, we would love to hear from you. Please email us and tell us how it has helped you. We would really like to hear from you. The last two sessions, we replayed a couple of lessons from my seminar in Chicago, dealing with the nature of fulfillment and the historical documentation for those fulfillments. You will want to keep that documentation handy in the coming weeks as we look at those very events in their actual historical sequence as they were fulfilled. We also talked a lot in the last two lessons about cosmology and the importance of understanding how the Bible deals with the relationship between both the seen and the unseen realms. Since cosmology is something that very few Bible teachers ever deal with, chances are good that it is new material for all of us listening to these podcasts. And if you would like to get a better handle on that, I would encourage you to obtain my Garrettsville seminar lessons, which deal with that cosmology in a lot more detail. They're available in both video and audio format on our website. And our website address is www.preterist.org. This time we want to pick back up in our historical narrative at the beginning of the Neuronic Persecution in the summer of AD 64. We want to look at some of the other events that were happening while the Neuronic Persecution was going on especially those events in Judea 
during those two years just before the outbreak of the war in the summer of 66. From here onwards in our studies, we are in the end game, the final stage when the persecution accelerated and evil proliferated. Jesus and all the prophets referred to it as the birth pangs of the Messiah and the birth pangs of the world to come. When those troubles and afflictions and tribulation that accompanied the end of the age and the arrival of the age to come became much more frequent and intense, just like the labor pains of an expectant mother about to give birth. As the time of birth draws near, the troubles become more frequent and more intense. That's the way it was in the first century as the Neuronic persecution broke out. Those tribulations really became more frequent and intense upon the saints. Jesus told the apostles that this greater frequency and intensity of tribulation would be a sign that the end was drawing near. This was clearly something that they would have been able to see and experience and recognize as a sign of the end. Christ warned them not to go to sleep and ignore the warning signs, but to be ever vigilant and alert and sober-minded so that it would not catch them by surprise like a thief in the night. Jesus told them that his coming would not be hidden, secret, or obscure. It would be plainly visible and recognizable by the saints, just like the lightning which flashes across the sky. They would not miss it or be left around afterwards wondering whether or not he came. They would see him at his return and glorify him on that day and marvel at him in the presence of all who had believed. The angels would gather them into his presence. Their bodies would be changed and they would enter into his heavenly presence where they would remain forever. The neuronic persecution was that very kind of sign which indicated that the end was near. The tribulation instantly became more frequent and intense when the neuronic persecution broke out. They not only saw these things happening, but they felt and experienced those birth pangs personally and intensely. Most of those first century Christians died in that persecution or fell away back into paganism or Judaism. Those who deserted Christianity and went back into Judaism thought they were escaping all the tribulation. They did not realize they had jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. They were setting themselves up for a much worse tribulation and a long, drawn-out, slow, painful, torturous, excruciating death at the hands of the Zealots and the Romans in the war with Rome that was shortly to break out. They gained nothing by going back to Judaism. Instead, they lost everything, physically and spiritually. The Christians, suffering in the neuronic persecution, was indeed intense, but it was quickly over with. They did not have to suffer a long time compared to the starvation and other things that the Jews suffered during their protracted war with Rome. Dead or alive, the Christians came out victorious in that contest. 
They were the overcomers. The Greek word for victor or overcomer is Nike or Nikao, from which the Nike brand of sportswear comes. The Christians were the victors and overcomers in that great tribulation. They took all the spoils of that war. Death of their bodies in the seen realm only promoted them to glory and immortality in the unseen spiritual realm. Physical death was a time of victory celebration for those martyred Christians, as well as for the living and remaining saints who received the same reward at the parousia. But for the unbelieving and rebellious Jews, it was a time of utter weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Many of our fellow preterists are missing the boat on all this stuff about the relief of those remaining saints and their rescue out of the tribulation and their being caught up to their heavenly reward. It was a promise of this kind of reward that drove the apostles and their co-workers to lay it all on the line to get the gospel out to the diaspora in their generation. They did not sacrifice everything to the cause and go through that horrible persecution and tribulation thinking that the second coming would come and go without them getting any benefits from it or even knowing that it occurred. They were fully expecting to see it, hear it, and experience it to the max. They wanted that immortality and life and glory that Jesus promised to give them at his return. That is why Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that he considered the sufferings of this present time as not even showing up as a blip on the radar screen in comparison with the glory that was about to be revealed to them. Paul implies here that all Christians, dead or alive, would see that glory revealed and share in the benefits of it. That forces us to ask, was that glory revealed to them? Did they see it and experience it in any way? Did they know they got it? And if they saw that glory revealed and experienced the benefits of it and were still around on earth afterwards, why don't we hear about it? How could they remain silent about that glorious experience? They should be shouting from the rooftops and dancing in the streets about it and high-fiving everybody they meet. Anything but silent especially in view of Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius who were saying that the parousia was still future. Those saints who experienced the parousia would have spoken up and set the record straight. And if those saints had not experienced the glorious return of Christ as they were expecting to, they would have been sorely disappointed and disillusioned and would have been complaining about the non-fulfillment. Anything but silent about it, their silence screams absence. They were gone. Christ took his bride with him when he returned. Have you ever noticed that women, especially single women, love to attend weddings and be involved in helping the bride prepare for her wedding day? Why is that? The beauty and radiance of the bride, along with the chivalry of the groom, marks the occasion as special. It's exciting, it's joyful, it's hopeful, It's meaningful. There is a new, permanent, everlasting relationship that's being established here. 
Single women long for the day when their Prince Charming will ride into town, swoop them up, and take them with him to live happily ever after. That is something they dream about all through their childhood. When the bridegroom returned for his bride in 70 A.D., the bride was not expecting to be left behind afterwards. She was expecting to go with him to his prepared place and live happily with him forever afterwards. She was expecting to experience something at his return, not be left confused afterwards, wondering if anything really happened. When the groom returned for his bride in 70 A.D., did he consummate the marriage with his bride back at his father's house in heaven as he promised he would? Did she experience that consummation in heaven? Did she stay there and live happily ever after with him at her new home in heaven? Or did he leave her behind on earth and not take her to be with him? Was she bitterly disappointed about being left behind? What does it mean when a groom leaves the bride at the altar and goes on his merry way without her? It means that he did not marry her after all and that the marriage was never consummated. What do we call the period of time between the engagement and the marriage? The Bible calls it the espousal period. But that is the description of the 40-year transition period leading up to AD 70. The parousia was not the beginning of the espousal period. It was the return for the bride and the carrying away of the bride to the father's house where the marriage would be consummated and the new couple would live forever afterwards. If the bride was left on earth after 70 A.D., there is only one conclusion that we can draw from that. Either the groom did not return, or the marriage was never consummated. In that case, the bride should be screaming, Jilted! at the top of her lungs. But we do not hear the complaints, nor do we hear the joyous shouts from the rooftops. All we hear is silence. Did you catch the power of that? Well, I will get off my soapbox now and continue our study of the espousal period when the bride was preparing herself for that glorious day when her Prince Charming would come riding in the sky on his white horse and whisk her away. We need to look at what was going on in Judea during the two years leading up to their revolt. The revolt did not just pop up all of a sudden, and happened without a process of development beforehand. The Jews went from a very warm relationship with Nero in AD 64 to an open break with Rome in AD 66, only two years later. Something must have happened during this two short years, which rapidly escalated the tensions between Rome and the Jews and provoked the Jews to go to war. It's like the fuel rods in a nuclear reactor heating up toward meltdown. There was a breakdown in the leadership of the Jewish people, which was normally able to keep things cool and under control. But it broke down somehow toward a meltdown in only two years. Gessius Florus, who was the new procurator that was appointed in 64 AD, late 64, 
just about the same time the Neronic persecution broke out. He came into Judea, and he's the one who let the troubles in Judea multiply and intensify to the point that the Jews could no longer tolerate the conditions that they were having to live under. There were problems during the previous governors of Festus and Albinus, but they quickly deteriorated under Gessius Florus. He became procurator right about the time the Neronic persecution began in the summer of 64, and remained procurator until the war began in the summer of 66. It was during his governorship that the meltdown occurred, and Josephus blames Gessius Florus for provoking the Jews to go to war. It is at this time that the Christians went silent. It was no longer safe to preach the gospel or even openly meet together as a church. They were running for their lives. And if they worshiped together with any other Christians, it was secretly and in hiding. We know that there were still some Christians around since Jesus promised that some of them would live and remain until the parousia. The great tribulation would be cut short so that the elect could live and remain until the angelic gathering at the parousia. Matthew 24, verse 31 tells us that. But in order to survive until the parousia, they had to go underground and disappear off the radar screens of the Jewish and Roman authorities. That is why there are no more books written by them after the outbreak of the Neuronic persecution. The New Testament canon was already finished by that time anyway. The gospel had already reached the whole diaspora. The apostles had finished their assignment, and just in time. The end had now arrived. The saints would undergo judgment first, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, and then the wrath would be poured out upon their persecutors. As we noted in previous lessons, the Christians had been warned to get out of Judea and Jerusalem two years in advance of the Neronic persecution. Eusebius tells us that they were warned by a certain revelation to leave Jerusalem before the wrath was poured out. We see that prophetic warning reflected in both Paul's letter to the Hebrews and in John's Apocalypse. If the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea had obeyed those warnings to flee in late 62 and 63, they would have been out of harm's way easily by the time the Neronic persecution broke out in the summer of 64. Eusebius tells us that some of the Christians did leave Judea, but we do not know how many nor exactly when. We just know that it was before the war broke out and probably before the Neuronic persecution broke out as well. We do know that after the Neuronic persecution began in the late summer of 64, it would no longer have been safe for Christians to remain anywhere in Judea or Palestine, much less in Jerusalem. Any who were still in Jerusalem at the time the persecution began would have been arrested and put to death. There was probably no warning in advance that the Neuronic persecution was about to strike. It caught them like a hidden trap. If they had left when the books of Revelation and Hebrews had warned them to, they would have escaped in plenty of time. But evidently, most of them stayed until it was too late, 
and they were killed in the neurotic persecution. Since they disappear from history, and only a small remnant of Ebionites and Nazarenes show up in Pella later. The vast majority of Christians are gone. The neurotic persecution with its associated great apostasy pretty much removed all the Christians except the elect whom Christ had chosen to live and remain until his coming, at which time they would be changed and caught up to be with him forever afterwards. This automatically raises the question about the stories we hear from Eusebius and others about Christians still being alive in Pella after the war, and some of them supposedly coming back to Judea to restart the church there. A closer look at those traditions, however, reveals the Judaizing character of those supposed Christians who were in Pella. They were Ebionites and Nazarenes, both of which were Judaizers, and most of which denied the deity of Christ. The Ebionites were the larger group, and Ebionites were the ones who denied the deity of Christ as well as required circumcision and law-keeping. They were Judaizers. Apostle Paul taught in the book of Galatians as early as A.D. 51 that those who required circumcision and law-keeping had severed themselves from Christ. They were no longer true Christians. They were Judaizers. They were Judaizing apostates. No wonder they were still around after 70 A.D. They were not true Christians. So they were left out of the rapture, like the five foolish virgins in the parable of the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 25. They had severed themselves from Christ. And that's divorce language. They had broken their espousal by requiring circumcision and law-keeping. So they were no longer a part of the bride. And they were not taken with the groom when he came for his bride. There were Gnostics and there were other heretics and apostates that were left behind as well. They had copies of the New Testament writings by which the writings were preserved and distributed again after the war. That may also explain how some of the corruptions of the text happened so early. The Gnostics and Judaizers may have deliberately tampered with the text to reflect their own views or to correct some of the eminency text that seemed not to have been fulfilled according to their physical kingdom on earth expectations. There were no first-generation Christians still around to guide them and correct them, so they quickly and easily fell further into confusion and error. We'll talk more about this later when we get into the history after AD 70. For now, however, we need to take a closer look at what was happening in those two years between the beginning of the Neuronic persecution and the outbreak of the Jewish war in 66 AD. One of the first events I want to look at is the uh, procuratorship of Albinus. Uh, When he heard that Gessius Florus was coming to replace him in late 64, he emptied the prisons. What a marvelous way to endear himself to the Jewish people. Empty the prisons. Josephus says that this filled the country with robbers. Albinus was probably still the Roman governor of Judea at the time the Neronic persecution broke out in Rome 
but it looks like from the timing of Gessius Florus' arrival that he must have been sent to Palestine at that time, which would be late 64 AD, either late summer or early fall. So it seems that the change in procuratorship from Albinus to Gessius Florus may have occurred about the same time the Neronic persecution broke out in Judea. It may have begun under Albinus, but his successor, Gessius Florus, finished the job. The procurator most likely would have allowed the Jews to find the Christians and bring them to him for execution, or maybe even just allow them to execute them themselves, using their own Sanhedrin court system to condemn them. The Jewish leadership would have taken full advantage of Nero's hostility to wipe out the Christians. That would have been an extremely dangerous time for Christians living anywhere in Palestine, especially in Jerusalem or Judea. The Christians had to flee the country or go into hiding. This is why the statements of Eusebius make a lot of sense, where he says that the Christians were warned by a revelation to get out of Jerusalem a few years before the war. They were indeed warned before the Neuronic persecution. The book of Revelation contains such a warning. Come out of her, my people, in Revelation chapter 18. And it was written in late 62, soon after John was exiled to Patmos, almost two years before the Neuronic persecution broke out. This would explain how Paul and Peter seemed to be familiar with the book of Revelation when they wrote their books of Hebrews and 1 Peter in AD 63. Paul also tells the Hebrew Christians to leave the city of Jerusalem in Hebrews 13, verses 13 and 14, written in AD 62 and 63, because it was not a safe place for Christians any longer. Things were already heating up there, and the persecution was really getting stiff. John had just been sent into exile. James had just been executed there. And so it was already, at the time Book of Hebrews and Book of Revelation were written, it was already an unsafe place to be. And it would certainly be unsafe if they waited much longer until the Neuronic persecution broke out. Now I hope that gives us a little bit of a grasp of what's happening in the church at this time. Most people, when they read the New Testament, just simply don't know this history, and it just goes over their heads. They just don't realize what's happening and why the New Testament writers are saying what they're saying. But the book of Hebrews especially, and the book of Revelation, and those last few books that were written by Peter and Paul, really give us a lot of clues and a lot of hints about what's coming down the pike and what is already beginning to happen as things heat up in the persecution. And so knowing this history will help us an awful lot in looking at and understanding those last few books of our New Testament. Also in late 64, just as the Neuronic persecution was breaking out, Agrippa II, who was considered to be the king of the Jews, he still was allowed by Caesar to uh, designate the high priest and to have control over the high priest vestments and give them to whoever he wished. And so Agrippa II was there. He assembled the Sanhedrin and ordered them to pass a law allowing the Levites to wear linen garments just like the priest did. And of course, that's against the law. That's an unbiblical command. And the Jews 
certainly had every reason to oppose it, but they didn't. And they allowed the uh, Levites then to wear linen garments like the priest so that they could sing alongside the priest in the temple. They thought that the uh, just wearing those white garments like the priest would disguise themselves so that they could go in with the priest. That's like wearing a sheepskin when you're a wolf, you know. You may deceive some of the sheep, but you won't deceive the shepherd. And the great shepherd of the sheep certainly noticed that they were breaking the law. Okay, also in late 64, the construction of the outer buildings, some of those uh, chambers that they built on the outside walls of the temple, were now finished. Basically, that ended the construction within the temple area. Uh, That finished up everything that they had been commissioned to do by Herod and his successors. So over 18,000 workers were now unemployed. And if you know history, you know that when you have a lot of unemployed workers out of work, they can't buy food. And they didn't have unions back in those days that could pay their unemployment compensation. So here we have 18,000 workers in Jerusalem who are now unemployed. The Jews wanted to put them back to work on rebuilding some of the eastern cloisters that weren't big enough or fancy enough. But Agrippa II denied that request and instead authorized paving the streets of Jerusalem with white stone. This was another one of those events which stimulated many disgruntled, unemployed workers to join the bands of robbers because they were not all put back to work on paving the streets with white stone. And so a lot of disgruntled, unemployed workers joined the bands of the robbers and the Sakari to plunder the Judean hillside. Some of them also became sympathetic to the zealot cause at this time, and we can see why. Agrippa II also, at this very time of the fall of 64, when the Neuronic persecution was raging, this was the time when Agrippa II deprived Jesus ben Gamaliel of the high priesthood and gave it to Matthias ben Theophilus. This supposedly occurred at about the same time the temple was finished and the streets were paved with white stone, according to Josephus in Antiquities, uh, Book 20, Section 222 and 223. And it's about the same time also that Gessius Florus arrived in Judea to begin his procuratorship and to replace Albinus. And now it's Gessius Florus' turn to fill the country with miseries. We know he ruled for more than a year since Josephus said that the war broke out in his second year of office, which was also the twelfth year of Nero's reign in AD 66, Antiquities, Book 20, Section 257. We also know that Gessius Florus had already been governor for a significant time before Passover 65, when a delegation of Jews there at the feast denounced Florus to Cestius Gallus, who had come for the feast. Florus had been in Judea long enough to make himself odious to the Jews. 
that implies at least six months and would place the beginning of his procuratorship no later than the fall of 64, while the Neuronic persecution was raging. This means that Florus received his governorship from Nero in Rome about the same time the Neuronic persecution had begun, in the early fall or late summer of 64, and must have taken his boat trip to Judea before the seas became unsafe for travel in mid-fall. This could mean that Nero sent Florus to Judea to oversee the persecution against the Christians. It's not without significance that Florus' wife, who was named Cleopatra, obviously a different Cleopatra than the one down in Egypt, but his wife Cleopatra was a close friend of Nero's wife Papea, by whose influence he obtained the procuratorship. Since it is probable that Papea was involved in the scheme to blame the Christians for the fire in Rome, and I'm sure she knew about it if she was not involved in it. Cleopatra would probably also have known about it since she was a good friend of Papea, and her agreement with it may have influenced Nero to select Florus as the one to oversee the persecution in Judea. It is not surprising, therefore, to see Josephus describe Gessius Florus like this. Gessius did his unjust actions to the harm of the nation after a pompous manner, and as though he had been sent as an executioner to punish condemned malefactors. He omitted no sort of rapine or vexation. It's interesting, I think, that Josephus says he was like an executioner sent by Nero to punish condemned malefactors. Now, I don't know if that's a reference to the Christians and whether or not he was sent deliberately and explicitly for the purpose of rounding up the Christians and killing them, but uh, it certainly leaves that option open. Uh, That's one way of interpreting Josephus' statement here. Florus remained procurator until the war broke out two years later, in 66. Florus became partners with the robbers, sharing in their booty in exchange for their immunity from punishment. As a result, many more malcontents joined with the robbers in plundering the Judean countryside. Troubles began to increase dramatically at this time, during this two years before the war. This made life in Judea extremely difficult, even for those who were not Christians, and especially so for those who were Christians who were on the run. So it's no wonder that Josephus says that many of the inhabitants of Judea fled out of the country at this time. He says entire toparchies were brought to desolation by the robbers, and a great many of the people left their own country and flew to foreign provinces. Now, they didn't have airplanes back in those days. When he mentions they flew to foreign provinces, he's not talking about on airplanes. He's talking about on foot or on horseback or whatever way they could get out of there. They fled away to foreign provinces. I just wanted to mention that in case some of our listeners are young and don't realize that we're talking about 2,000 years ago when they didn't have airplanes. 
Well, like Albinus and Festus before him, Gessius Florus continued to provoke the zealots, pushing them farther and farther toward open rebellion. Josephus blames Gessius Florus for that provocation. He said the zealots might never have revolted, or certainly would not have done it this quickly and this soon, if Gessius Florus had not provoked them. Well, that'll do for the Jewish and Roman uh, events that are occurring about this time. I want to talk a little bit more about the Christian events that are occurring during the Neuronic persecution. And one of those, I believe, is the martyrdom of Apostle John. And of course, all of our futurist friends will say, wait a second, he wasn't killed until the 90s, 25 years after 70 A.D., Why are you saying that he was killed before 70 A.D.? You can't do that. Well, John was martyred in the Neuronic persecution, right at the very beginning of it. As soon as the news of that persecution reached the shores of western Turkey, where he was at the time, either on Patmos or in Ephesus, one of the two, he may have been released before the Neuronic persecution and resided in Ephesus at that point because he couldn't come back to Israel until the high priest died. And the high priest Ananus, who banished him, did not die until 68. So uh, there's no way John could be released from Patmos and go back to Judea. He would have to locate somewhere close by and stay out of Judea. And that may have been what happened. He may have been killed in the Neuronic persecution there in Ephesus if he had settled there like tradition tells us that he did after he was released. Since the island of Patmos was a Roman-controlled exile island, it does not seem likely that John would have been killed by the Jews there. And by the way, that's how Papias tells us that John was killed. They tell us that John was killed by the Jews, just like his brother James was. And so it's not likely that he was still on Patmos at that time when he was killed by the Jews. It's more likely that he would have been released from Patmos and resettled in nearby Ephesus, where the Jews would have had much more easy access to him. There are traditions which affirm that very thing that he was released from Patmos and that he resettled in Ephesus nearby. Patmos was just off the west coast of Asia Minor, or Turkey, so news of the Neuronic persecution would have reached Patmos about the same time it reached Ephesus and the seven churches. And then a few weeks later, the news would have reached Judea and Jerusalem. Since the island of Patmos was controlled by the Romans, it seems almost certain that Apostle John, if he was still there on the island at the time of the outbreak of the Neuronic persecution, would have been killed by his Roman captors as soon as they received the word from Nero. John was not a Roman citizen, so he would not have been allowed to appeal to Caesar for a trial in Rome like Apostle Paul was able to do. The fire in Rome was July of 64. The persecution began shortly afterwards, August of 64 probably. News of that persecution would have reached Patmos within a few weeks at the most, and John would have been immediately executed. 
However, as we have seen previously, there is reason to believe that he had been released from Patmos before the outbreak of the Neuronic persecution. In that case, the traditions about his activity and death in Ephesus would make a lot more sense. Whether on Patmos or in Ephesus, we can be sure that the outbreak of the Neuronic persecution in late summer and early fall of 64 would have proven fatal for those last three apostles, Paul, Peter, and John. The Jews would have taken full advantage of this Roman persecution to settle their old scores against the Christians. Papias says explicitly that it was the Jews who killed Apostle John, just as Jesus had predicted in Matthew chapter 20 and Mark chapter 10. Well, next week, I think we're going to take a little longer look at those seven churches of Asia that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, one of which was where John was supposedly after he was released from the island of Patmos. He was at Ephesus, which is the first of those seven cities that are mentioned in Revelation. And I think this study of the seven churches and what happened to them in the Neuronic persecution will give us a much better grasp of what was happening for Christians during this traumatic time of the Neuronic persecution in those two years just before the Jewish war. So next time we'll take a look at those seven churches and see what happened to them. And that'll just about wrap it up for this time. If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we looked at here in this session, do not hesitate to email me. Please send me some feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. And again, that's preterist1. It's the number one, not spelled out. Preterist1 at preterist.org. Thanks so much for listening.